Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back. So today, this is part two with Master of Wine, Tim Atkin. And we're going to be hearing from Tim what it's like to write his wine reports, what he is looking for when he tastes a wine and then decides how to rank a winery or to put a wine or a specific winemaker in his podium. As you would have heard last week, this episode is all about the Ribera del Duero region, as recently Tim published his latest report on this area. However, if you haven't heard last week's episode on Rioja, be sure to go back and listen to that one. Now, this region may, like Rioja, be mostly about Tempranillo, but what about an even older great variety, one of the parents of Tempranillo, and I'm talking about Albillo Mayor. We will be touching on all of the grapes, the regions, the climate. Why is this region so extreme? Why is this the most prestigious? We'll talk about its history and also some of Tim's most special and spiritually grounding wine spots for him to be in. Now, of course, a very special mention to my sponsor of this series, Wickham's Wine. And in fact, they do have a bottle of Bodegas Resalte de Peñafiel Ribera del Duero Leco Roble (laughs) on their site. Sorry, that sounded really long. Uh, The winery Resalte de Peñafiel is rated as one of Tim's Cru Bourgeois. You'll see what I mean when you download the report. And so don't forget, if you're on that site, use the code EATSLEEP10 for 10% off your first order. You can go to my show notes for the link to their website, along with also the transcript that I do for this podcast. So if you want to look up any names or regions that Tim mentions, you can. So pour yourself a glass of wine and let's go. Right now. Let us move on to Ribera del Duero because I've actually really enjoyed, this is the latest report that I've been reading through and it's been brilliant because I know a lot less about Ribera del Duero than Rioja, which we just spoke about on our our previous report. Now, I love your reports because we mentioned on the episode before you you create like the 1855 classification system. So you put certain wineries into kind of the level so it can really give people an idea of what to try. You give people awards, you the, the young winemaker of the year, the legend winemaker, there's the best value white, the best value rosé, the best red, there's everything. So And then you give points and information about every wine. So there's just, there's so much. And you give every report, I love the system, the 10 things that people must know about this region. And there's a lot in those 10 things. What is it like for you writing these reports? Because you're doing quite a lot of them now as well. Yeah, I won't pretend they're not hard work. But I mean, there are, there are obviously two phases. And the one phase is the research where I go to the region and I taste all the wines and I take notes and, and then I come back. And the first thing I do is I write the tasting notes up. And that can be a bit of a slog. 
to be honest. I mean, I think I write reasonably good tasting notes, but writing, you know, I, I have a system and it looks a bit like, I have a grid. It looks a bit like a prison sentence where I do 75 <laughs> a day and I cross them off. And basically I do 25 every two hours. So I do three blocks of two hours during the day and I break them up by going off for a run or, you know, going to gym or something like that. And that's how I do it. And then the last bit, which is the most pleasurable bit, because it's the most journalistic bit, is when I've kind of taken all the stuff out of my notebooks, I do the 10 things. So the 10 things, some of them are consistent from one year to the next, but others change. And so I try to shake them up a bit. And some things are, are you know, re-edits of what I've written before, but I try and always to put new stuff in there so that somebody bought last year's report is not just getting the same 10 things. And those are the bits that interest me as a, as a journalist and as an amateur historian, in a sense, that, that, and those are the bits that are, that are most journalistic and, and I, I hope the most fun to read. As a master of wine, you mentioned before that actually you think you're quite good at the tasting. So. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> what are you looking for when you're rating the wines, when you're tasting every wine and going to visit the wineries? That's a good question. Somebody, I have this disagreement with a fellow master of wine, and she says that you should be able to rate wines objectively, right? In other words, so you could, you, sh- you should be able to say, I don't like the style of wine, but I can see that it's well done. I half agree with that. So there might be a style of wine where I think I really don't like this. I find it a bit over-alcoholic. It's got too much oak, but I can see it's well done, right? And I would give it an okay score. But for me, for something to really thrill me and excite me, for me to give it a high score and a rave review, it has to be something that personally I'd want to drink and I'd want to buy. And I remember doing a a show in Australia once and Steve Weber, who was the, the chairman of the judges, said, I don't want you to give a gold medal to any wine you wouldn't personally buy a case of. And I thought that's good advice. So I thought anything from me that gets, you know, 98 points and above or even 95 points and above would have to be something that I would not only drink, but put my own money on the table and say, I'll buy this. So I'm cautiously subjective. I think in the end, the reason people read me and not somebody else or, or, or they buy my reports is they want my opinion and and they want my taste buds. And I think I have a certain set of styles of wine. And it, it thrilled me recently that somebody in, in South Africa said to me, I always think of this as a Tim wine. And I said, great. You know, he said that, <laughs> that, you know, people have started to say, hey, this is the kind of wine that Tim would like. I like that. And, uh, you know, my feeling about wine writers is that people... I don't think I have a monopoly on taste. I don't think I'm the best taster in the world. I'm the only person who's, whose opinion matters. But I think if you're buying a wine that I've recommended, I want somebody to come away for it and say, okay, I can understand why that guy recommended that wine. And it makes sense that his palate is consistent. I mean, I think palates that are all over the place where you're trying to second guess the consumer don't make sense to me. Yeah, no, okay. That's really, really. And you know what? At the end of the day, it is so true. There are many people out there giving certain points. They are wine professionals or master of wines, and everyone is going to be different. And there are certain, without mentioning any names, there are certain other wine writers and tasters that always are known to score a lot higher than everybody else and things like that. But the point is, I suppose, actually, that a good advice for anybody is listen to these critics, go and taste the wines. And if you agree with them, you'll notice sooner rather than later if you agree with them based on those wines. And then actually then you can be like, hey, right, yeah, I actually really do like the wines that Tim recommends. So actually every time he says it's a really good wine, I know I'm going to like it. So yeah, and you could do that with other critics and journalists, can't you? Yeah. 
this is my guy or my woman, you know, in a sense that, and, and I agree with you. And there are people who I think overscore and, you know, there are individuals, <laughs> but there are also companies that do this, that give gold medals to wines that don't deserve them, in my opinion. And I think it's cynical, but I can't say that in public. You know, I can't name the people or the businesses involved, but I think you as a consumer can look at it and, you know, go and buy wine, see a gold medal on it or, you know, a high score from a certain person or group of people and say, I don't agree with this. And if you don't agree with that, then treat that person's reviews very warily and say, okay, I think this person or group of people or whatever competition is inflating its scores to carry favour with producers and get quoted more. If on the other hand, you know, and, and people sometimes accuse me of giving scores that are too high, particularly in South Africa, but I, you know, I, I genuinely believe in the wines, you know, I think it's important, as you say, to find your critic and, and that, that's true of anything, you know, like films or music or anything, you know, any strand, I should say, of criticism. It's important that you find a critic or a group of critics who, who you agree with on the benefit of, given the benefit of doubt, they will probably, you know, choose something that's worth watching or listening to or drinking, yeah. So for those people that do agree that their palate matches with your palate, can you give a slight sneak preview to those who have not read the Ribera del Duero report of this year yet and maybe mention a few winemakers or wines that made the podium this year that people might want to keep an eye out for? Yeah, the winemaker of the year was somebody they probably won't have heard of, which is a guy called Cesar Mate, M-A-T-E. And, and he has a bodega with his partner called Marta Mate. And I think Marta Mate, he was my winemaker of the year. And I think that he's well worth looking out for. The legend of the year was a chap called Felix Callejo. And Felix Callejo is the name of the bodega and it's his name. He's now retired, but his kids are running Felix Callejo. And Felix Callejo, I think, is a truly brilliant winery. The wine of the year was a Vega Sicilia. Sorry, folks, it was it was Unico. Unico is very expensive, <laughs> but was a truly wonderful wine. Another winery that I would look out for, and they won the Rosé of the year, are called Territorio Luthier, L-U-T-H-I-E-R, like a, like a lute. And those wines, again, small bodega, well worth looking out for. Another producer, brilliant producer called Magna Vides, which is V-I-D-E-S. Another small producer called Valdaya. I think they're really good. And the young winemaker of the year, he says, trying to remember who it was, was from a bodega <laughs> called Seisolo. And so Seisolo is, again, a really, really good winery. So there's just a few highlights. But have a look, you know, the, the, all, all the wines of the year are in there. And Ribera is, again, one of those regions that's much, much, much more diverse than people think. No, and actually what I like, you, you said, oh, sorry, guys, you know, my, my red wine of the year is you know one of the most expensive. And, and quite rightly so, very iconic wine. But what I like as well is you score all the wines, but for everybody right at the back, there's like the reference guide where you've literally listed every wine and then you give an idea of pricing. I can't, or do you actually, yeah, I think, do you actually, I can't remember now, the actual price? Yeah, I do. I have the prices in, in euros because some of these people don't export to the UK and therefore the prices they get in the Ribera report would be the prices in the Spanish market in a wine shop. But it gives you an idea, again, if people only want to spend a certain amount of money, but they really want to try a wine that you recommended that's within a certain point uh, level, they can kind of look and actually, it's like like a reference guide. So you've, it's really good how you've how you've broken it all down. Yeah, and I think you, you can cross-reference, you know, like I think it like, a, you know, a wine that gets, I don't know, 91 points and, and it sells under 15 euros in Spain is pretty good. It, it's a bit of a bargain. And funnily enough, we, we did a tasting in London recently of the top wines. And they're all there. But we also had a value table and it was something like 30 wines that sell under 15 euros in Spain and some really good wines. And I think Ribera has a reputation for being 
an expensive region, obviously partly because of Vega Sicilia, but also because of Pingus, which is even more expensive. But it is a region that produces good value too. And I, and I think that, you know, the sweet spot in a way, and this is true of wine in general in any market, is to find the wine with the highest score. It's the lowest price. Well, not the lowest price, but a price that you can afford. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think in England, I mean, it's moved up a bit now because of duty and, and all sorts of other things. But the sweet spot in England these days is sort of between 8 and £15 pounds. You know, you can drink very well in the area as long as you choose your region and your country carefully. You can drink some pretty smart stuff. You don't need to spend, you know, £100 a bottle. Thank goodness. Not always. Talking about Ribera del Duero, now you have actually put in your report that this is the most prestigious region of Spain. So why do you believe this is the most prestigious? Well, because of, partly because it's based on the fame of those two wines. I mean, you know, Vega Sicilia and Pingus are, are two of the most expensive Spanish wines. I mean, there are others as well, like Edmita, maybe from Priorat. There's nothing really in Rioja. Rioja is a very prestigious region as well in the top end, but there's nothing really that sells at the price of those sorts of wines. I mean, Pingus is 850 something euros a I was bottle say a now. A thousand almost, yeah. Yeah, probably a thousand euros a bottle. I mean, that's pretty serious. And so I think the prestige of that. Place. And I think you could argue that Vega Sicilia is Spain's most famous winery. So I think the fact that it's got the most famous winery in Spain, pretty historic winery too, but it's also got what is probably the most expensive wine in Spain too, means that it's prestigious. It's smaller than Rioja. It's about a third of the size. I'm not saying Rioja is not prestigious. I just think that Ribera is probably more prestigious and just has a better image. I think Rioja has sometimes a bit of a cheap and cheerful image and it's something that's done to itself in a way. So, you know, you've talked about Vega Sicilia and Vega Sicilia's history actually is quite intense. A lot of people might not know about its history. So actually, can you, and you touch on that in the report in much more detail, but are you able to just give us a little bit of an idea? Absolutely. The Vegas Sicilia was founded in 1864. And it's funny enough, there's a link with Rioja here. A lot of the top Rioja wineries in the mid 19th century were set up in the 1850s and onwards by Spaniards who'd basically fled Spain yeah, during the wars and had actually come back to Spain from France and set up wineries. So they brought French ideas with them. And that's true of Marques de Riscal, for example, which was very, very famous for doing that, Marques de Murrieta. And it was also true of Vegas Sicilia. Vegas Sicilia was founded in 1864 by somebody called Don. Eloy de la Canda. And to start with, the winery was actually called Bodega Winery de la Canda. So he named the winery after himself. And this guy was a true revolutionary. He brought Cabernet Sauvignon, Carmenere, Malbec, Petit Verdot, obvious, they're all Bordeaux, but he also brought Pinot Noir. A lot of these things are still planted at Vega Sicilia. So Vega Sicilia was a testing ground, really, for these grape varieties. And Ribera del Duero in those, in those days was not known as Ribera del Duero and didn't have a particularly good name for its wine. And from 1864 to 1927, when Protos, which is the local, what was then a cooperative, was founded, Vega Sicilia was the only bodega that was bottling its wines in Ribera del Duero. So it was an icon, you know, for all that time. And it's remained an icon now, particularly since the Alvarez family bought it, I think, in 1982. They put a lot of investment into it. It's a pretty special winery. You know, I mean, I spent a morning one day with their viticulturist. Nothing escapes their attention. It's like unbelievable attention to detail in the vineyard, in the winery. And it's one of those wineries that's very special. It's true also for some of the Bordeaux first growths. It kind of deserves its reputation. It deserves its high prices because it's bloody good. And they put the work in. It's not cynical. It's They care about the wines. Well, I said to you that probably the fact that we were talking about Spanish wine, I would mention my dad at some point. Vega Sicilia Unico is always going to be a very special wine for the two of us because basically 
one time I gifted him a bottle. Now I didn't buy the bottle. I was very lucky. I was a sommelier at the time and I was given a tip by very affluent customer. And the tip was this bottle of Unico. I think it was 2003. And I gave it to my dad and said, look, I drank a bottle with the customer. I already know how amazing it is. And I want you to have this because he's incredible. He'd been doing all these wonderful things. And he said, oh my God, this is amazing. Like he looked it up. He saw how expensive it was. And he said, we're going to drink this on a very special moment together. And I said, that's fine. Whenever you want it, don't worry. This is your bottle. But yes, of course, I'm happy to drink it with you. And then one day on a Wednesday or Thursday night, I get this phone call from my dad. He's practically crying down the phone. And I'm thinking that somebody's dead and I, he can't get his words out. And I am like, oh my God, my heart is pounding. I feel sick. And he's like, your mom, your mom. Like, what? Oh my God, what about my mom? And she's, she, she, I, I asked her to go behind the bar and get a bottle of wine out. And she went past all the screw caps. And basically, anyway, long story short, my mom decided to open up on this Wednesday night a bottle of the Vegas Cecilia, and it went with a pizza that had been put in the oven. And he was devastated. And he was like, and I, he was like, I, I drank like a full glass. And then I realized it was amazing. But at least and he drank I didn't it. know why it was. So- <laughs> and he's like, but I was like, well, dad, first of all, how good is that? You didn't even know what it was, but you realized it was so good that he asks my mom and then my mom shows him the bottle and his heart falls out of his chest. And he says, can you, can you come down? Can you get down tomorrow? Like, so we can, and I'm dad, dad, you know, like, listen, I've got work to do. I can't come down and see you. You know, you're going to have to drink the rest of this bottle yourself. But anyway, but you know, we laugh about it now because I was like, look, dad, like there are very little people that would open up a bottle of Unico Vegas Sicilian and eat it with frozen pizza. Well, you know, defrosted and cooked frozen pizza. Like, you know, good for you. At least it didn't go into a stew or something like that, right? It could have been worse. So, oh God, yeah. So that's a very, it's a very special wine. Now we talk about this incredible region. Many people may not know about uh, its, its extreme and its climate. Do you think the the fact that, I mean, you? I think you described this, you have to dress like an onion when you go to Ribera del Duero. You have to love lots of layers. Exactly. <laughs> Is the fact that it could be so hot in the day and so cold at night, the real diurnal range, the extremes. Do you think that's what makes this region so amazing or are there other factors? Absolutely. It's like, you know, no other region on, on earth really that I can think of that it has, you know, a very, very short growing season, right? Because it has very long winters and very short, but very intense summers. But even at the height of summer, as you said, you often find, you know, you could be in, in shorts during the day and you kind of need a sweatshirt at night. So that diurnal variation as you said, is kind of a key to the wines, to the stars of the wines that are made there. And it's the reason why the short growing season, why they've historically grown Tempranillo, Tempranillo, Temprano in Spanish means early, it means early, obviously. And so it's a, an early ripening grape variety because the season is so short. I mean, it's locally, it's often called Tinto Fino, so just fine red. But no, exactly. And it's part of this high Spanish central plateau, the, the, the Meseta, it's in the northern part of, of the Meseta. Spain in winter gets really cold, that central bit. I mean, Madrid, I flew through Madrid yesterday, two days ago, on my way back from Chile, and it was, I changed planes and it was minus three, you know, at six o'clock in the morning. So it gets really cold. And that's what Ribera is about, really. Although, like a lot of places in the world, it's warming up and that that's potentially a problem, really. But I suppose they still, again, let people, are, you've got, it's up to about 800. No, I mean, it goes up to a thousand, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
there's still space for them to plant higher. And I think that in your report, even you mentioned that is, I mean, that's one of the ways that perhaps, again, they can try and combat good old uh, climate change. Yes, exactly. It's funny, but the, the, the high bit is known as the paramo, and the paramo in, in, in English is sort of moorland. So it's sort of flat stuff up the top. And historically, that's where that's where the limestone is. And limestone is a very good thing on which to grow, to grow tempranillo. And basically because the region historically was underwater. And so it's it's marine-based fossils and limestone. And what happened is that a lot of these re- these areas at 1,000 metres, the Paramo, were too cold to grow grapes. In other words, the, the even Tempranillo, early ripening Tempranillo, ripened too late. So people didn't plant up there. And people started to plant in the 1990s. And when people did it, a lot of people said, you're insane. You know, th- this will never ripen. But the pioneers have been proved right because with climate change, it's now possible to ripen Tempranillo at 1,000 metres. In fact, those are probably some of the best sites. So these high vineyards, flat vineyards rather than on slopes, often on limestone soils in the Paramo, are slightly the sort of rebearers of the future, I think. And presumably, standing in some of the vineyards that high up, that you must have some very beautiful views looking out across uh, the region, right? Yeah, I mean, Roberto Dura is in Castilla Leon, and Castilla Leon is, is the heart of old Castile, as it was known in Spain. And it's famous for these unbelievable views, vistas. You know, it's just intense. You know, we're often with castles on hillsides. It's sort of the image that people have of Spain when they think about Don Quixote, you know, the famous novel, you know, by Cervantes, where Don Quixote kind of riding across La Mancha. <laughs> and that's the landscape he would have been riding across, really. And these unbelievable vistas you can see for miles and miles and miles and miles, because, as you said, you're high up. So you get mountains, you just get these unbelievable valleys. And there's not much in terms of centres of population either. I mean, obviously, uh, Valladolid is a reasonably large city and Burgos is quite big, but there's a lot of expanse, a lot of space. Uh, and you really get this sense of light, incredible light, incredible colour, fresh air. And as you said, the intensity that comes with altitude and the diurnal variation. It's a, it's a brutal place to grow grapes. It's a slightly scary place to go in a way. You know, it's it like... When it's cold, it's really cold. When there's a hailstorm, it's really bad. You know, when it rains, it really rains. It's and particularly with climate change, this stuff is getting is getting more extreme in a way. So it is an extreme place to grow grapes. And I think that's kind of reflected in the wines. So now you've touched on Tempranillo or Tintofino, which is the same grape variety as in Rioja, but actually as well, the blend of what they put with the Tempranillo is actually very different as well. So what are your thoughts on the other grapes that can go with Tempranillo in a Ribera del Duero? They've changed them recently. I mean, the, the laws are slightly strange. In anything that was planted before 1982, and 1982 was the year when the DO, the appellation, the Demoniathan de Origen, was created. So Ribera is a very young region. It's just over 40 years old, really. But it's much older than that, in a sense. But it wasn't codified until 1982. So then they decided that Tempranillo had to be a certain percentage, and the percentage was 75% of all reds. And then you could use 25% of other reds, but some of them were limited to the amount that you could use, and some could only be used if they'd been planted before 1982, right? Of course, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so it's a bit strange. But the other things you can basically grow are the Bordeaux grapes, so Cabernet, Merlot, Malbec. You can also use Garnacha, but only up to 5% Garnacha, I think. But you can't use Bobal, and Bobal is a grape that came in from, from Valencia and is a grape with naturally high acidity, unless it was planted before 1982. So these vineyards... Old vineyards often have hundreds of different grape varieties, but the region was very strict in hanging its hat, if you like, on Tintofino, on Tempranillo, and saying, we want our wines to be either 
only made from Tintofino or dominated by Tintofino. I think the, the percentage for other grapes is 25%. It used to be you could only use 5% white, but they've recently changed that and you can now use up to 25%. And the white grape varieties are used to add acidity to Tempranillo because Tempranillo is not particularly high in acidity. And with climate change, even in a cold region, it's not helping. It's not helping really. So I think it was a smart move by them to allow more white grapes, which is what would have happened historically in the region anyway. If you go back you know, into the 50s, white grapes would have been much, much, much more important then than they are now. Now they're a tiny percent of what's planted. Well, this is interesting because you mentioned the white grapes. So again, throughout your report, there's a commentary on Albigio Major, the white grape variety, which is hardly planted, but now one can be used, blended in with Tempranillo. But there are some winemakers that are actually focusing on making 100% this white grape variety. And you're definitely championing this white grape variety, aren't you? Yeah, it's a really interesting grape. One of the small little footnotes to its history, if you like, is, and it's one of the reasons that people think that, that Tempranillo or Tintofino may have originated in Ribera del Duero, is that the Albia Mayor is the father of Tempranillo. And the mother is a red grape called Benedicto, which I've also tasted both in Ribera and in Rioja, and you can still find in vineyards. And so Albio is a very historic grape, and it's so historic that it predated Tempranillo, if you like. So again, it's been around for a long time. But it's only in the last two or three years that they've allowed white Ribera to be made. And most people are making either 100% Albio Mayor, or they're using white grape varieties that were planted again before 1982. And so again, a lot of these old vineyards have all sorts of stuff in them. And you can blend other white grape varieties in with Albio Mayor, but only if the vineyards are historic. I mean, it's a really interesting grape. Yeah, I think you have come up with a conclusion in your report. You do kind of describe it, but it seems that it depends on if it's an old vine, if it's younger, where it's planted. Like th there's not a hundred percent consistency of this is what it should taste like. I think that's a very perceptive thing to say in that there are certain great varieties, let's say something like Gewurztramina, right? which pretty much anywhere it's grown in the world smells and tastes about the same, really. I mean, it's, it's got a very strong personality. Albia Mayor is a little bit more nuanced in a sense. And I think what you said is correct, that it needs to be in the right place and old vines, a bit like Viura, really, in, in Rioja, that it, it's a comparatively neutral grape variety and that to get the best out of it, it needs to be in the right place and with some old vines. And then when it's got that it could be really interesting. And there are half a dozen, I think, fantastic white grapes, so white wines made with Albia Mayor. So watch this space. I think Ribera Blanco is an exciting new avenue, really, for the region. Do you think that they should be focusing even more on whites? Or do you still think Ribera del Duero needs to be known as the red? I think it's what it does best is reds. What I would allow is, for the moment, it's illegal to make a red wine 100% with Garnacha. Uh, Bobal is completely forbidden. And I think a lot of these Mediterranean grape varieties that have higher levels of natural acidity and withstand heat, and Ribera is hotting up, and particularly two of the last three vintages have been very hot. And irrigation, you know, can be expensive, particularly in old vineyards where it wasn't there. And I think that these Mediterranean grape varieties would add a lot. And my next hope is that Ribera will be a bit more flexible and maybe allow people to make a pure Garnacha. People are doing it, but at the moment they can't sell it as Ribera del Duero. It has to be called Vino de la Tierra de Castilla León. So a table wine or a Van de Pey equivalent, really, country wine from Castilla León. And I think it's a shame because I, I think more diversity is a good thing, really. I mean, you know, Tintofino at its best is a fantastic grape in Ribera, don't get me wrong, and it's great blended with other things. 
But I think that allowing people to make single varietal wines with other things would be interesting. Do you think that is the biggest thing holding it back, their inflexibility to allow in using different grapes? Funnily enough, I think they're pretty flexible. And I think because it's a young denomination, they're much, much more flexible than Rioja that we spoke about in a previous podcast, where Rioja is a bit stuck in its ways. So I think I think Ribera, because it's smaller and newer, is a bit lighter on its feet. And I think the fact that they allowed 25% white grapes to be blended in with red, you're never going to get that in Rioja, even though the reality in a lot of old vineyards is that old vineyards are planted with often more than that, with lots of whites, you know, but people have to lie and say there's only 5% white grapes when they're often 25%. And I think that truth is always a good thing. And, you know, recognising what you've got in your vineyards, why is that a bad thing? I think it's a good thing to say, hey, this is what we did historically and this is what we're doing today. I personally think that's a positive, a plus point. So I think they're much, much, much more flexible. And I think they will realise that Garnacha, first of all, and maybe these other things like Babel. Why not? You know, wh- why not allow people to sell those as Ribera? Because you're not going to get hundreds of them. You might get five or 10. That Ribera for the future, for the medium term at least, is going to be dominated by Tintofino stroke Tempranillo. And that's going to be what it does best. And that's what it's best known for. And rightly so. So if somebody wants to go to this region, where's your recommendation, perhaps where they might be able to see quite a lot of the really good wineries condensed in one area? Good question. I mean, Rivera is divided into four provinces, really. And a lot of the most famous wineries are in Bayadeli, the province of Bayadeli, which is named after the city that's nearby. But most of those wineries, and it includes Pingus and Vega Sicilia and others, Arthuaga, don't actually have vineyards, or some of them don't have vineyards there, or Dominica Pingus doesn't. The majority of the vineyards and the majority of the best vineyards and the majority of the of the wineries are in Burgos. And Burgos is the central bit. And that's kind of oh, probably, you know, 75% of what the region produces. It has two other little provinces. One is called Soria. The other is called Segovia. Segovia, absolutely tiny with about three producers. Soria, really good, but way out in the east. So I would base myself in the centre, which is Burgos, and I'd stay in the town of Aranda, de Duero. Now, Randa de Duero is right in the centre of the Dio. You can get to anywhere from there, basically. It's got good restaurants. It's comparatively inexpensive. Yeah, it's a nice place to stay. There are decent hotels. I would base myself there. And that way you can go, if you want to go out to Soria, which has some of the oldest vineyards in the world, you know, 200-year-old vineyards, pre-phylloxera vineyards, go out there, way out to the east. If you want to go to Vega, if you can get in and you want to go to Pingus or Arthuaga or some of those other places out in Biadolid, you can go there. If you want to go to Segovia, you can go there. But you're right in the middle of the heart of it is really Burgos and, and Aranda de Duero is the kind of main town inside Ribera del Duero of Burgos. The main town, obviously, of, of Burgos is Burgos, but Burgos is actually outside the region of Ribera del Duero. And when you're there, obviously, we're all going for the vineyards, for the wine tasting, but are there are there as well any wine museums? We mentioned about the wine museum in Rioja. Do they have any wine museums in Ribera del Duero that you know of? That's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of his- there are a lot of historic cellars in Aranda, which date back to the you know the 16th century and even before. And you can visit you can visit some of some of those cellars, which is worth doing. There are some very historic places. I mean, you know, the, the, I would go and visit some of some of the towns really in the villages. Aranda would be a great place to start. 
In terms of a wine museum, I'm trying to think, actually. There's one place in, in a place called La Vide, V-I-D, uh, which is the vine. And they have a, a bit of a wine museum there. And you can stay at the hotel there. And they, you know, it's not a full-on wine museum. It's not Vivanco style. We've talked about that previously in Rioja, which is an enormous wine museum. But, you know, that would be a good place to get a sense of what it's like, really. And do you have, is there a Tim spot, the place which is the most peaceful, the place that is just your favourite. Do you mean in the world? Stand. No, what, no, I was going to do Ribera del Duero, but actually I can open that up for two. I want one in Ribera del Duero. And now Ooh. I also want out uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world. Yes, I want both. Okay, well, I, I think in Ribera del Duero, my, my favourite place to visit is probably Soria. And it's very small and it's only about two or 3% of what the region produces but it has these 200-year-old vines. It's just a magical place. There's nobody there. And if you go to visit them, they have a lot of these old underground bodegas that have been abandoned. And it shows you that in the middle of the 19th century, before phylloxera and mildew and oedium, all those things arrived in a lot of the regions, a lot of wine was produced here. And a lot of it was sold you know, in bulk and things like that. But you can see these subterranean bodegas that have now been abandoned, really. So you see these little sort of houses on the top and then the masses of stuff underground. So I'd, I'd go and have a look at those. That would be my favourite region to visit in, in Ribera. My favourite place in staying with Spain, oh, well, probably one of my favourite places in the world is in Rioja called the Echicera. And the Echicera is a dolmen. And dolmens are these sort of, it's a bit spooky really, but they're they're like burial mounds. Okay. And there's a particularly <laughs> amazing burial mound in a village called El Villar, and this is called the, the Dolmen de la Echicera. It just has this incredible atmosphere. And every time I go to Rioja, I always go there and I just pick an acorn up off the ground and I bring an acorn home and I usually carry it around me for a year. It's a little superstition I have that this place just has an amazing energy. And there's something about these prehistoric people. I mean, we're talking kind of druidic, people they weren't druids but that kind of that's how old this these burial mounds were that they understood something about whether they're ley lines or whatever you call these points of energy close to the mountains and the way the bodies were laid out and it, there's just something you sense that they understood stuff about the way nature works and the way energy works and the way I don't know. I mean, I'd, spirituality is a big word, but you know, there's something there that's bigger than us. I'm not a religious person at all. I don't really believe in God, but I do believe in force. And maybe it's a sense of people leaving something behind, that you leave something of your essence behind. And these, these essences of people collect in certain places and, and are given, you know, sometimes they can be bad things. I mean, I'm sure you've been to places where you think there's something slightly spooky about this place. You don't feel yeah. You feel it. And there yeah. are other places you go where there's a place in Chile. I don't know if you've been to Alcohuas, which is right up in the Andes, 2,000 metres. And that's one of my other favourite places. And that's an amazing place. I mean, you know, they say that they've had, you know, sightings of UFOs and lots of people who are witches and averted commas and people, mystics, they go to this particular place because they think it's a, it's one of the kind of central points on earth that concentrates all of this energy. I mean, I'm, I, people are going to start thinking I'm David, I'm David Icke. I'm not. But I do think there are places where you just feel good. I mean, and there's got to be something that's not just the fact you like the fresh air, there's got to be something about that place. And I think it's a kind of accretion, if you like, of, of historical things that have happened there, good things or of energy that radiates that energy back out to other people. You know, it's like, it's like certain people, you know, I don't know about you. There are certain people I hang out with and you, every time I see them, I just think, I want to smile because they're great. And there are other people you see them, you think, oh God, they're so miserable. You know, they're just so, they're such a downer on everything I do <laughs> that you avoid them because they're, because they're negative people. And and I'm, I think I'm automatically attracted, you know, like you, you're, 
friend of mine because you're a positive person. And I, I'm attracted to people, in, you know, in, in a very loose sense. I don't mean physically attractive. I mean, I mean mentally and emotionally attracted to people who I think are positive souls. God, that's a bit long, wasn't that response? But you know what I mean? That was the longest response, but ever. so beautiful because it no, <laughs> ever in the world. No, but yeah. when you can connect with nature, when you can feel an energy that lifts you up, because we're all vibrating, everything is vibrating. The earth is vibrating, we're vibrating. So uh, totally. So no, everyone else might think you're all woo-woo. I'm woo-woo <laughs> anyway. So you've just you've joined me. And I am completely, I think that's a really nice Good. way. To start summing up this episode, we are the woo-woos. Yay! Yay to the woo-woos. And now, let us finish off again with a bit of a quick fire round because we're here to make wine fun. So I want to know, right, keeping it Spanish themed, if you had to choose between Manchego paired with Tempranillo or some Jamón Iberico with Sherry, what are you going to go with? My ideal match with Tempranillo would actually be lamb. Lamb chops or lamb yeah. cutlets, well, right? Well, you're ruining it. <laughs> so they're not going to go down the Manchego. I'm, I, I'm a sucker. I mean, jamón iberico is probably my one of my three favourite flavours on earth, and sherry's okay. sherry's are pretty much up there too. So I, I'd go jamón and sherry. Okay. Now, because we don't want to make this only about Spain, I'm taking us a little bit further away. So now, oysters and chablis, or a pad thai and a riesling. Okay, I'm going to reject oysters. I've always not seen the point of, I don't see the point of oysters. Somebody once said to me they taste of snot and seawater, and that's kind of what I think about oysters. I, I don't I don't get that oysters are sexy, I'm afraid. Love Chablis. Don't really, I, I could go without oysters for the rest of my life. Pad Thai okay. Riesling, love that. I think particularly a Riesling okay. with maybe a little bit of residual sugar. Not a bad thing, folks. Nothing wrong with residual sugar if it's balanced in the wine by acidity. I, I go Pad Thai Riesling. Yeah, sorry, oysters, Perfect. oyster fans. I know there are lots of <laughs> So they're very sexy. I just find them a bit of a turn off, actually. Uh, okay. No. What about what about truffle risotto and barolo? Another classic pairing, or wild boar bolognese or ragu with chianti. I might love both of those, but I'm going to go truffle risotto with barolo, particularly if somebody else is paying for the truffles because they. Mount- <laughs> I mean, I don't think you've ever been to Piemonte and you see them scraping little bits of truffle onto your food. You go, shit, that's 20 quid I've just spent. Each one. I know, I know. Each slice. (laughs) That's why I'm like, uh, I'll just have the oil. No, but I'm I'm going truffle risotto with Barolo because I think that Barolo is a truffly wine. And and I think, you know, that's essence of place. You're getting brilliant wine if you get good Barolo. And you're getting incredible truffle at the same time, particularly if you go November time. Now, this is a very, very complex question. This is going to be very, very difficult. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's not <laughs> difficult to answer. Okay. So you've got, you can have, you've got two options here now. You can have a glass of barefoot. It could be, a, I don't know, barefoot Shiraz. I'm sorry, sorry, barefoot. Out of a Zalto glass or a glass. Well, it's not even a glass. You can have some tasting of Chateau Margaux. First growth Bordeaux. It's your shoe, though. It's your shoe, though, not someone else's shoe. I suppose the point with the shoe is how many miles have you walked in the shoes? Are they new shoes or are they going to be like smelly shoes? No, no. They might be a little bit sweaty. Okay, well, I'm going to go Chateau Margaux on my shoe. Uh, I think I, <laughs> I, I generally try to avoid anything barefoot, as it were. Uh, okay, I know. I love that. To be and to be honest, I when I was a sommelier in um, Beast Restaurant, a guy. 
I don't know why he did it, decided he wanted to drink some wine out of his shoe. He had been drinking throughout the evening. It was a very big turnoff, but that is actually what inspired me oh. to create that question. You meet all these as interesting people. As I saw people. a human... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in the wine industry, do we not? Yes, There's we a do. lot of people you meet. We do. I think we do. We meet a little bit of everyone. Now, to finish off, because this one is no, super serious. Okay, you've got a superpower. You can either turn water into wine or you can instantly age the wine you have to the perfect drinkability. I'm going to go turning water into wine because I think there's a business in that. <laughs> all about the profitability not really no but, no but, but I, I think the thing about perfect drinkability is perfect drinkability according to whom because you know i often okay. find this that you know particularly like champagne is a good example the french uh-huh. love young champagne and they find mm-hmm. our taste for older champagne mature nutty toasty all those things a bit weird so i think i think perfect drinkability or maturity is subjective really so i'm going to go turning water into wine because you know you save some money as well wouldn't you if you get turning water into wine think as long as it's good wine i mean are, are we talking barefoot white uh, i mean we can we can discuss it's the getting pa- too I mean, complicated we'll it. I'm, I'm over complicating yeah. things <laughs> Leave it. Water into wine. Perfect. Jesus, there we have it. Thank you so much, Tim. We could do this for hours. Um, it's been so, great but fun. But for now, I think I think <laughs> you've given us all some food for thought, or should I say drink for thought, you know, so a lot for people to work on. Everybody, download the reports. What's your website? So my website is www.timatkin.com. And if you want to buy tickets for the Rioja event, and please come on February the 13th, it's under events on my website. So you see a little tab, click on events, and you can buy through a website, basically, another website, third-party website. And you've got plenty of reports to download where people can get into the nitty-gritty and really understand and and suggestion of wines to taste from around the world. Please buy them and don't share them with your friends because that's how I earn a living. Thank you. They need to buy them. They need to buy them. You already have. That's why I love Signing off now. That's why you're my friend. (laughs) Yay! Thank you so much. See ya. And um, we'll speak again soon. See you soon. Have a good year. So if you haven't already downloaded the report, go to timatkin.com and there you're also going to find his other reports. So Rias Baichas, Rioja, South Africa, Chile. What I love also with these reports is there's a list of further readings should you really want to dive further into any of these regions or a list of recommended restaurants for those of you hungry food lovers as well thinking to visit the region. So it's it's a great source of information for those of you who want to know the region and it's wine so much better that you're not actually going to find on the internet already. So next week I am talking with Dr Norbert Reinisch who is the export sales manager of Brider. Now this is an incredible winery in Piemonte. Braida is the story of Barbera, so the great variety Barbera. However, we'll be talking about all of their incredible crew wines in the second part. But next week, as we are fast approaching Valentine's Day, we are going to focus on some of their slightly more fun wines and specifically Bracchetto de Aquí. This is a sweet, frothy, light red wine absolutely perfect for Valentine's Day. So go and check out that specific wine because maybe you want it in advance for when you listen to this podcast. But for now, I will finish off with a wine quote. This one is from Dante, an Italian poet, writer and philosopher. And he said, wine spreads poetry in the hearts. 
I think Tim has been beautifully poetic over the last few episodes. So I hope, you know, you've been left inspired and ready to learn more. Thank you as always for listening to the podcast. Do show your support by liking, sharing or leaving a review on the podcast app you are listening to. And I will see you back here next Monday. Until then, wine friends, cheers to you.